We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Truth Perspective. I'm your host, Harrison Cayley. With me, as usual, co-host, Elon Martin. Hello, everybody. And in the studio today, we have Sot Editors William Barbet. Good afternoon. And Shane Lachance. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about a number of stories and topics that have come up over the last week or so relating to all, all sorts of things from weather to strange people to crazy stuff all over the place. Where should we start today, guys? Such a mess. What about, um, I don't know, I want to save my stuff for later, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's start with, there was this article that came out just recently by Henry Cannons on New Eastern Outlook. And it was the subject of um, South Ossetia, which, if you remember, um, in the mid-2000s, was uh, attacked by um, Michael Saakashvili and uh, his um, government in Georgia. And um, basically, uh, South Ossetia is this region... um, just kind of bordering uh, Russia and falling between uh, Russia and Georgia. And so um, basically uh, there was this kind of uh, massively aggressive um, military incursion, um, bombing innocents in South Ossetia. And um, Russia came in and literally drove uh, the Georgian military back um, if you remember, a, a young girl was interviewed on CNN at the time and um, about the whole event. And I guess the folks on CNN were trying to twist it into uh, an early version of Russian aggression. But she ended up uh, actually thanking the Russians on air and then was promptly cut off uh, from the feed. So um, that's a little background story to this. And Well, there's just to cut you off for a second there, Ron, there's a... A documentary on SOT called Remembering the 080808 Georgia War. Um, it's really good. It's 48 minutes. Um, so it gives a lot of the background and the stuff that was going on. So if you're not familiar with what happened, um, check it out. Just go to SOT. You can search uh, Remembering the Georgia War, and it should come up. Well, it gives a good uh, reminder to how things you see, how we've seen things play out in Ukraine. And, you know, that Georgia really was just an earlier version. Exactly. And um, and there seems to be, you know, a lot of the, the conditions and the, the conflict that we see in Ukraine today are kind of being repeated again in Georgia, even though, uh, you know, former President Mikhail Saakashvili has been um, basically uh, given the riot act in Georgia. He's no longer welcome there. Uh, 
comes into the welcome arms of uh, Petro Poroshenko of Ukraine and is basically handed this uh, governorship of uh, Odessa, uh, a region in Ukraine, um, and is basically there uh, just to foment more conflict and um, and just sort of rile things up in such a way that would create further uh, pretext for the U.S. Uh, and allied psychopaths in Europe to come in and say, oh, you know, we, you know, we have to do more to defend Ukraine and support its military, who are Nazis. So basically what we have now in Georgia um, are these NGO types, these uh, non-governmental organizations that are paid for by, you know, organizations like USAID and, and uh, other kind of um, State Department connected groups, including, you know, George Soros, uh, who are basically trying to um, create this or exacerbate uh, a division between South Ossetia and Russia. So you have folks who are coming in from um, uh, Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, uh, part of these NGO organizations. And um, there are these uh, border conflicts and um, and other types of things that are going on there. Um, but all these guys essentially are there to do is gain power over this region of people. So um, something that Kamen's writes is uh, it is entertaining to read press reports on the issues that are going on there. Uh, both the Georgian and Western press are talking about Russian-backed occupying forces, um, which isn't true. Russia basically went in there to help the South Ossetians uh, in 08, and that was it. Um, he goes on to say that the Ossetians, who already live in the district, um, you know, they're kind of contesting this idea uh, that the Russians are there. They're saying, what Russians? Um and there are peacekeepers uh, who are going there who basically are making money off the conflicts. And I think this is pretty much one of the most useful uh, takeaways in Cannon's article. Um, so he says, various peacekeepers, those who make money off conflicts, are calling for restraint and for the use of existing mechanisms, such as the Geneva International Discussions, and the Incident Prevention and Response Mechanism, called IPRM, to diffuse ongoing tensions. Yet, as often happens, their actions on the ground are perceived by both insiders and some in the international community as highly suspect. So one of these guys is named Andrew Barnavi. He's kind of like the, uh, um, oh, who's that guy um, in Russia? Uh, Yvegni, um I only wrote an article about it <laughs> like six months ago. Um, but basically, he's he's a bought and paid for non-governmental organization, political, so-called political activist. And what they say of him is that he took a party of his supporters and local media uh, who are actually more of a storyline story than anything they write about to the border regions um, to kind of take advantage of all of the... Um, disruptions and, and difficulties of living life in that area. 
Um, and they were basically told to, quote, go forth and multiply, uh, if you understand what that colloquialism means. Uh, they were also called cowards by the Georgian farmers living in a contested border zone who were wise to what the NGO and media types are up to and whom they are really working for. Uh, they come, make noisy statements, boast, and then turn away and go back to Tbilisi, while our situation here gets worse. We are no longer allowed to even work on our land, said one of the farmers. If they, the journalists, are really so brave, why don't they come and stay here with us? We now have to start our harvest while under serious risk. And if Andrew Barnovi and others are really so brave, we urge them to come here and help us with the harvest, another told Interpress News. Um, it hasn't gone unnoticed that the Stop Russia meetings, as they're called, in Tbilisi, organized and paid for by outsiders, NGO players, have coincided very conveniently with recent events in Ukraine, Armenia, Azerbaijan, as if all these diverse peoples are suddenly singing from the same hymn sheet. The locals also now, uh, you also, the locals also know that Barnovi, founder and leader of the Movement for Independence and EU Integration, is also chairman of the board of the Saakashvili Presidential Library and a member of the Political Council of the United National Movement. Uh, he, he was also head of the presidential administration during 2013 and served as a member of the, Defense Minister, the Ministry of Defense back in 2011-2012. And the article goes on to say that it was, of course, Barnovi's beloved Saakashvili, Michael Saakashvili, who we just talked about, who moved into South Ossetia and, uh, and is now kind of, you know, he killed his own people with cluster bombs and is now set to do the same. So Saakashvili is this kind of hired gun, and I think it's very instructive to see how these individuals are all connected and kind of fighting uh, for the same thing. Um, so, actually, the the guy I was thinking about is uh, Yvegni Navalny. Um, he was the guy who is, has his own kind of, um, you know, anti-Putin movement in uh, in Russia, who was convicted of several crimes, known to be on the payroll of uh, of U.S. interests and non-governmental organizations, and uh, and so. You know, Russia has since gotten wise to these non-governmental organizations. It, I think it's enacted some legislation recently that um, that aims to curtail the amount of influence they have because it's so obvious that they are paid foreign interests. And Georgia is kind of moving in that direction, but there's this struggle going on. Um, and so, um, you know, hearing the farmers of, of this region in South Ossetia uh, say, go off and, you know, go forth and multiply, you know, in other words, go screw off. Um, it's kind of, uh, to me, a little inspiring to hear that there are people who are aware of these dynamics, who understand that there are interests involved, that, that are just taking advantage. Uh, they're parasites. They're, they're there to, uh, manipulate the situations as they are, uh, to exacerbate any racial tensions, any nationalistic uh, tensions. And um, it's just a, this, this dynamic that we're seeing 
get played out over and over and over again. And this is the same Sakashvili guy that uh, is now running the... Which region is it in Ukraine that he's running? Is it uh, Odessa? Odessa? Yeah. And the U.S. offered to basically pay for anything he needs there. And for his staff. Yeah. That he he fired all the previous persons and hired all new ones, and the U.S. is going to pay for it. Mm Mm-hmm. That's some great, some great Ukrainian democracy going on over there. I think that uh, I think it's a model that all countries should follow. Should just get uh, foreign weirdos with shady criminal histories to take over, you know, ruling provinces and states and regions, and then the U.S. can just pay for it all. And uh, you know, I think it's just a great model. I hope they're all wearing edible ties. Of course, that's a reference to Saakashvili's photograph of him munching on a tie. I don't know what what does that suggest about the guy that he's hungry or that he uh, he would he would eat his tie if uh, if he were proved wrong about something or there's got to be some kind of symbolic larger meaning there. No, I think I think he's just a three year old. In a, in a grown man's body, kind of looks like a three-year-old. I said it before, like he's just got that goofy look to him all the time, like the goofy smile. And you look at him, and you'd, you'd think that he's just kind of maybe, you know, not all there and just kind of a a jolly little funny guy. But it turns out he's actually quite uh, quite a nasty piece of work. And uh, well, that reminds me of some other guys, but in the UK. But we'll get to them a bit later. Uh, basically, yeah, he's a he's a snake. But uh, he puts on a good show, and he's got that uh, that goofy smile that he can hide behind, and um, that's pretty much it. And he just eats ties and says silly things. And I guess that's you know why these guys are tapped for their positions of power. I and mean, you you take one look at them, you have a blink, and you're like, this goofball couldn't possibly be so destructive. Uh, you know, you look at uh, Petro Poroshenko. You know, he he looks like a like a oligarch who's made his empire on, you know, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't resemble uh, this kind of, you know, egomaniacal uh, guy who's willing to have tens of thousands of people killed uh, in order to secure his position of power. So I guess that's just a lesson, you know, psychopaths can look like goofballs. <laughs> It was like Shashkavili may have been watching Bush a little bit too long. <laughs> yeah, there's another goofball. I kind of miss Bush, actually, because he was, well, he was so fun, you know, because he was just so stupid and goofy that you could just make fun of him. And, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't stop providing good material. Yeah. Bushisms were never-ending. But, uh, well, I think, you know, at least there's hope in the United States because uh, there's another goofball running for president or hoping to get in there, Donald Trump. And uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about a bit about Donald Trump again in a bit. But first, I think we should talk a little bit about this Iran deal and what's going on with that. So, because, of course, huge diplomatic success apparently this deal was signed and we've talked about it before the guys on behind the headlines have talked about it so i mean 
don't have to go into too many details about the actual deal and the process that led up to it, but um, there's been some some speculation on what's really going on and you know why now and why this sudden about face and why the change. Of course, there are a lot of people angry about it because they think it's a horrible deal. Some people think it's a great a great deal and that uh, you know it's one of Obama's great um, foreign policy successes and. One of the one of the ideas is that this is actually just a um, a way of bringing Iranian gas into the equation and thus providing some competition for Russian gas. So essentially, it's like, well, we'll we'll let Iran off the hook, but only because that will help us in our covert war against Russia. So there's that angle to it. Did you have? Yeah, we'll see how that turns out, though, because <clears throat> you know, historically Iran has such a better relationship with Russia, yeah. and just you know geographically, it makes more sense for Iran to you know um, move forward in the deals that they have with those countries and regions rather than um, moving towards the West. And you know, I, I really just don't see uh, that happening um, to any great extent. Uh, there's just so much, you know, um, the the conservatives and, you know, particularly uh, Israelis and the influence there is just so strong. Um, you know, you see their, 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 their whole reasoning, you know, is um, it's irrational and, um, you know, that's their basis that they, that they work from. And, and, it, and it's so embedded in, in, in Washington, um, yeah, I don't really see any. Well, what's been most interesting for me is seeing the actual reactions of um, specifically Republicans to this deal. Not just Republicans, but uh, you know, leaders around the world like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And there's a there's a good clip. John Stewart had a, a segment on it where he took just some of the reactions and then gave some some commentary on them. So I'm just going to play this as a jumping off point for more discussion. And it's funny too. Iran has promised to freeze their nuclear program, disable their plutonium reactor, cut their centrifuges. It is a landmark diplomatic accomplishment. Or to put that another way. This is a bad deal. It's an awful deal. Terrible deal. What a stunning historic mistake. It's a historically bad deal. <laughs> historically bad deal. I know a bad deal when I see one. What's so bad about this deal? You have now ensured they will become a nuclear nation. This is a bad deal. The worst possible outcome is you've created a nuclear arms race in the Mideast. You put Israel at risk and you put us at risk. Okay, that's a f***ed up deal. <laughs> that does sound like a bad deal. Wow, I'm sorry, uh, Senator Graham. You must have been shocked when you saw those details in the copy of the deal that you read. The only other thing that I would add is that we don't know all the specifics to this plan. That's true. And you yourself, have it, you yourself haven't read anything, That's true. Right? Basically, you're treating this critical international accord like some kind of bizarro iTunes user agreement. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just skip all the details. Go to the bottom and click disagree. <laughs> I thought taking away the keys to Iran's nukes would be a good thing. What's the problem here? 
This deal puts them on the path to be a nuclear weapon state in eight to ten years. They'll have a bomb probably within 15 years. Nuclear warheads uh, within uh, 10 or 15 years. 10 to 15 years? With the way the world's going? A nuclear Iran is going to be the least of our problems in 10 to 15 years. Iranian nukes will be a break from swimming through our climate change flooded cities fighting Ebola zombies with our teeth because we can't hold guns thanks to our iPhone-shaped hand tumors. That, that's what's going to be a treat. You know, it's funny. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu seems very upset Iran might have a nuclear weapon in 10 years since his pre-deal estimate was slightly less optimistic. By next spring, at most, by next summer, at current enrichment rates, they will have finished the medium enrichment and move on to the final stage. From there, it's only a few months, possibly a few weeks, before they get enough enriched uranium for the first bomb. Now we're talking about Iran or Wiley Coyote? Who are we talking about here? So listen, sir, by your own math, this deal just bought us about nine extra years. I'm sure this deal ain't perfect, but what is our alternative? I think the alternative is for Congress to reject this deal and demand a better deal. My answer is a better deal. Go back and make a better deal. Ah, better. Yes. Why didn't I think of that? A better deal would be better. Curiosity, what would this better deal entail? What would have been an acceptable deal in your mind? Describing the perfect deal, I guess, would be a deal under which Iran would not be able to acquire nuclear weapons. Clearly, I think the Republicans just need to get behind someone who understands deal making. In the you look at this Iran deal, which is a total disaster, and we don't even get our prisoners back. If you had the right messenger, like if I did it, or if I picked somebody that did it that right. knew about negotiation, not somebody that goes into a bicycle race and breaks his leg at 73 years old. That was Donald Trump at the end there saying that you know, he would have come up with a great deal. Right. The art of the deal. Well, so I think we need to go back a little bit about this because the whole Iran having nukes uh, hysteria is predicated upon the idea that, okay, Iran's going to get these, it's gonna, they're going to have nuclear power, they're going to build these bombs, and then the next thing you know, they're going to bomb Israel, as, as if all else follows. And this is, uh, this is just, it's mad. I mean, it, it's, uh, and I don't mean mutually, well, yeah, I do mean mutually assured destruction. Um, the idea that uh, you know, Iran is so hateful of Israel uh, that at its first opportunity, it would just obliterate Israel. Um, and of course, this is based on uh, Ahmadinejad's um, misinterpreted statements about you know wiping uh, Israel off the face of the map when really he was he was talking about the the, the government, the regime, um, and so. You know, everyone knows Israel is a is a nuclear power, uh, and even if they weren't a nuclear power, they have one of the biggest, most powerful air forces in the world. Uh, 
it would be, you know, so, so in other words, Israel is saying, and, and people in the U S the Republicans are saying that, um, as soon as Iran has this nuclear power, they're basically going to commit suicide, uh, because they're going to suddenly attack Israel and, and then, uh, Israel would be a, would logically and that kind of psychopathic logic, uh, retaliate full force against Iran. So, uh, that's just like one of the under underpinnings of this whole argument, um, that, that Iran is so crazy. It's such a terrorist state that it, it would do these things when of course, uh, Iran is actually one of the least aggressive, uh, countries in the middle East. Well, I think there's, adding some subtleties to that argument as well. Um, the, the, the claims that Iran is, is providing weapons and all this stuff to terrorist groups, um, they're kind of worried that, well, they'll pass on some nuclear technology to these terrorist groups, which will, those in turn will do the attacking, not Iran directly. Right, and who do they really support? They support Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is uh, one of the few kind of cohesive um, political armed groups. Not that I'm a not that I'm a proponent of Hezbollah per se, but uh, they they are um, a kind of bulwark against uh, Israel's um, incursions into uh, the Golan Heights and other parts of Lebanon, and are also willing to support the Palestinians in Gaza if if it came to that. Um, and the Yemenis. And the Yemenis. Right. And the fight against ISIS. <laughs> Speaking of terrorist groups that are, you know, armed by, arms supported and trained by uh, state powers, um, you'd think that, well, no, you wouldn't think that there'd be any logic to, uh, <laughs> to the way these sorts of issues are approached uh, by politicians. So, yeah, Iran's this big bad guy because it supports a few groups that the West considers terrorists, while the West arms and funds arguably the biggest terrorist group in, you know, that is on the scene today. So, I mean, it's just a total joke what's going on. And I mean, what's really annoyed me from this so far is watching YouTube and the little ads that I've been seeing for the past few days that are coming up for... Um, from Republican politicians calling for people to, you know, call the one of the guys responsible or dealing with this Iran thing and getting him to, I don't know what they expect him to do, but, um, you know, they're making statements like, Iran funds terrorists, they're our enemy, why are we dealing with our enemies? Um, you know, uh, presumably that means the alternative, well, what, what's the alternative really? You know, besides a, a better deal, which is just nonsense, um, what should we just bomb Iran? Is that the is that the plan? Well, that's what McCain said. Yeah. Bomb, 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 bomb Iran. So I guess that that's uh, that would be a better deal, maybe, mm. because obviously diplomacy and coming to agreements where where Iran basically does what the West wants, which is to stop its uh, you know nuclear enrichment and stuff like that. Um, so. I just can't get in these guys' heads. What, they just, what's wrong with that, that deal? It's it's bad. <laughs> it's bad, and it's not good, and it could be better. Yeah, <laughs> they, they can make it better. That's pretty much it. I mean, that's 
that's the level of of intellect that we have to deal with. Um, oh, this way we got a call on the line. So one sec, this is Joe. So Joe, no, just wait. He's still coming on. Joe, are you there? How's it going? What do you want to talk about? Yeah, not too bad. No, I just wanted to uh, say something about uh, what you're talking about. Um, obviously, <clears throat> everything you said is pretty much on the money, but um, it just uh, it strikes me that um, the the narrative that the average person gets about Iran and what's been going on with Iran is just so far from the truth. Pretty much like everything else, uh, every other narrative mm-hmm. you get about what's happening in the world is so far from the truth. <clears throat> um, you, you already mentioned that the reason for the Iran deal was um, um, largely to do with, uh, from, the, from the point of view of the, the U.S. government, it's uh, to open up kind of um, uh, gas, alternative gas supply from Iran and other uh, natural resources from Iran to Europe. Um, and it's also, I think, the plan ultimately is to uh, drop the price uh, of oil uh, again by, you know, having another um, source of oil, a major oil producer and exporter on the, on the world market to, to reduce the price so they can have that kind of leverage. And obviously both of those things are aimed directly at Russia, at the... Mm-hmm. Uh, the long-standing, ongoing <clears throat> attempt to push Russia back and prevent it from um, uh, asserting itself or uh, taking its rightful place, I suppose, in the, uh, in, the in the world order, you know. Um, but when I, anytime I hear anything about Iran, I think back to uh, maybe what seven, eight years ago now, and before that, when there was a lot of um, I think a lot of people have forgotten about this. That there was a time around 2005, six, seven when it looked like uh, Iran was going to be the next for regime change. You know, mm-hmm. there was that uh, hostage hostage crisis of British sailors who were uh, supposedly kidnapped in international waters, even though they were in Iranian waters, by the Iranians. And it looked like this was going to be used as a kind of pretext, or it looked uh, like that event and other events and the kind of rhetoric from the British government and the American government and stuff was that they were building up for some kind of a uh, an attack on Iran, you know. But then the whole thing went quiet. And then after that, you had the beginning of these steps that have led us to today, you know. So just the timing of all that is kind of interesting because it was around that time, I think, 2005, 6, 7, um, when it became obvious or very clear to the Western powers, the U.S. and the British, the Anglo-American Empire, as I like to call them, um, that Russia was a serious problem, and they're going to have to do something about Russia. Um, that uh, Russia's intentions became very clear to them at that point, and um, so I think uh, this detente with Iran has a lot to do with Russia. But it also strikes me that um, uh, this whole talk about Iran having a nuke, you know, mm-hmm. it's all it's mm-hmm. all bogus. You know, I mean, I don't know if anybody's seen it, but there's a there's a video of uh, Netanyahu at the UN uh, about 1994, 1995, 1994, 1995, so basically um, 20 years ago, yeah. I mean, it was in 1996, and he was saying exactly the same thing. He was saying that Iran was going to get a bomb in one, in one year, in 1995 or six. Uh, and, he, and then he went back to the UN 
uh, just uh, this year or the end of last year and said exactly the same thing. Uh, apart from the fact that he hadn't changed, so I wonder what kind of uh, juice that guy's on, uh, but he hadn't changed almost physically in 20 years. Uh, and maybe <laughs> he... Um, mm-hmm. You know, he has got some kind of a, a special kind of fuel. Keeps him keeps him looking young. Um, but um, he's a robot. Yeah, always a robot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it it kind of the whole thing. I wouldn't be surprised if behind all of this, the kind of truth behind all of this is that um, Iran has had uh, nukes, has had a nuclear bomb, or one or more than one for quite a long time. Uh, and this is because this was actually I don't know if you remember as well uh, several years ago when they were talking about threat from Iran hyping it you know this is seven eight years ago uh, there were several CIA uh, kind of intelligence reports that came out around that time and they were very conflicting but one of them at least said that uh, at that point Iran was just a few months or six months or a year or something from uh, having a, bo- a bomb. And then I think not long after that, uh, uh, another conflicting report came out that said no, that they had basically mothballed their whole uh, nuke uh, program and there was no chance of them getting a bomb. So I think behind all of that is the likely truth is that they have, ha- have had a bomb for a long time and mm-hmm. that no one wants to admit this because uh, that's, I mean, it's not so much that, so if you look at it in that, in that context, it's not that the Israelis don't want Iran to get a bomb, they just don't want anybody to know that Iran has a bomb um, because of how that would change perceptions and change uh, the kind of politics uh, in the whole region, you know, uh, and I think um, a deal was struck a long time ago when they first uh, imposed sanctions against Iran was that uh, basically we're going to impose sanctions on you um, to ensure that you don't, you know, uh, reveal anything about your bomb. And we, initially it was that they tried to stop them getting a bomb, but when they got a bomb and they found out that they had a bomb, um, the sanctions were imposed and deals were done behind behind doors um, to basically ensure that Iran did not go public uh, with this information. Um and that even now it would also say, <clears throat> go ahead. It would also totally um, go against Netanyahu's whole narrative and the Israeli narrative that as soon as Iran gets a, a weapon, they're going to to bomb Israel. Absolutely. So if yeah. if if Iran admits they have a bomb, then they're they're showing by their actions that they aren't aggressive, and the whole narrative falls down from that perspective too. Right. Absolutely. And you know the Israelis need. Uh, as Israel, Israel has always needed uh, is a threat, an existential threat to the state of Israel for it to effectively to survive and survive in the way that it is surviving today as this aggressive dominant force uh, in the Middle East. Uh, if it doesn't have an existential threat from another country, then certainly governments like Bibi's government and all the right-wing uh, warmongering governments in Israel would would be would be gone, you know. So it's very important for them to to have a threat and to be seen to be uh, under threat, and the Israeli people to be seen to be under threat, and the, and the government therefore uh, acting in the way that it has acted, successive Israeli governments acting in the aggressive way that it's acted uh, in the whole region to defend the Israeli people from this threat. You see, it's basically they, they want to be kept on a war footing all the time because that serves the interests of these psychos in power, you know, to 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 uh, rule in the way that they rule and to, to even rule themselves. So, um, 
that, that's I think that's a, the major uh, point behind all of this, the major geopolitical motivation behind all of this. And there's a lot of you know deals have been struck and deals have been done and uh, over the years, and the public, the general public, just so knows so little about any of it. It's just farcical, you know. It's it's not even mm-hmm. a, uh, it's not even a dim reflection. It's just a, of 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 the truth of the situation. What the public get, it's a, just a, a grotesque. Uh, um, uh, you know, um, grotesque image of, of of what's really happening. It's so it's so farcical, you know. Um, so that's what I think. What What do you think about the the Republican response, or just some of the the people in the states just saying what a bad deal this is, and that they you know they could have come up with a better deal? Do you think it's just partisan grandstanding, or did well, you I think, think that they're there I think are factions with different ideas. I think it's uh, it's an indicator of of the extent to which uh, the the Israeli or Zionist or whatever you want, whatever you want to call it, and that uh, the extent to which the Israelis have uh, influence over so many American mm-hmm. politicians. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's and it's not ideological, obviously. For some of them, that is, but very few. Most of them. Uh, are in some way um, beholden to uh, people either in Israel or uh, Israeli firsters and Jews in uh, America with a lot of power who have over many, many decades um, effectively subverted uh, what might have been (laughs) some semblance of U.S. democracy and and made it... um, uh, and put it in the pocket, essentially, of of those with uh, an agenda to make sure Israel always gets its way. Uh, I mean, of course, what I'm talking about here is you know years of blackmail and uh, mm-hmm. bribery, bribery, and all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, I mean that's not strange. I mean, the, the 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 reality and the influence of the Israeli lobby in the U.S. has been uh, has been publicly exposed uh, quite a while ago by. Uh, Walton Mearsheimer and other people, you know, it's well known. But mm-hmm. I think when they, when they talk about the extent and the inf- of the influence of the Israeli lobby, no one should think that they're exaggerating. It seems that there is a faction there that uh, uh, that really holds a lot of power over and the rank and file uh, politicians in the U.S. So I think they're just singing from the Israeli Israeli hymn sheet. Yep. So uh, ten years ago or so, um, when you know the the West was really pushing for what looked like you know so-called uh, regime change in Iran, uh, why why do you think that um, that that didn't happen? Was it was it because that you know we knew that they had uh, a nuke, or uh, because the the there was a shift in in focus to you know going more after Russia? Or you know what what was what what kind of prevented that from happening? Yeah, I I think at the time it might have been a combination of, of both of those things that there was a uh, a broader view by held by certain kind of a political uh, intelligence types in in the U.S. that uh, that their major problem was uh, Russia and that any kind of um, conflagration in the Middle East as like stirring things up. Uh, to the max by uh, starting some kind of a war with Iran would only ultimately have benefited uh, Russia and that the best 
uh, option for them was to begin to court Iran and bring it to the point that it has been brought to today. And of course, the idea that um, Iran has a has a has a, has a nu- nuclear capable country and, and was at that time would have probably influenced it um, as well. Uh, of course, I think the Israelis were the ones who were pushing, and it was primarily Blair, I think, at the time, um, who was was gung ho for for bombing Iran and stuff. And um, although John McCain was has always been, you know, he sings his little Beach Boy song, you know, uh, bomb, 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 bomb Iran, and um, that guy is such an idiot. Anyway, um, uh, I think that yeah, that a different strategy. Uh, was kind of won the day in that sense, and it was the, the broader strategy. The major problem for for the U.S. for the Anglo-American Empire is and has been for a long time Russia, and they saw that it was better uh, in, in terms of uh, ruling, pushing back Russia. It was better to uh, to keep try and get Iran on side and make it an enemy and try and you know invade. And but the Israelis, I think, would have been happy. They, they don't really care so much about uh, the fate of. Uh, the U.S. vis-a-vis Russia, uh, they're mm-hmm. you know they, they do to the extent that they get a lot of support from the U.S. But I think uh, broadly they would prefer to, if they can remain dominant in the Middle East and uh, and in that way continue to uh, exert their power, you know, over over the politics of the Middle East, which is obviously it's where most of the oil of the world comes from. They're happy to do that, and they obviously they really don't uh, don't trust and don't like the Iranians and. Um, and they would have been happy to see a U.S.-led uh, uh, regime change or bombing campaign of Iran. Uh, I think they're crazy enough to, of course, they're probably, at the time, they were confident that they could, uh, if, if Iran attacked them, they would probably launch some nukes at them first. And as you've been saying already on the show here, that uh, uh, the idea that Iran would use any of its nuclear capability against anybody is ridiculous because obviously they would be obliterated in in, in very short order, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So... So, yeah. Well, there, there's another part of this that's so interesting, and, and that's, um, you know, so the U.S. pivots towards becoming you know, friends with Iran, and uh, the real reason, which seems plausible, as, as we're now kind of uh, realizing, is that it's being used to uh, undercut Russia's uh, oil and gas industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, but, but this is, you know, such a big assumption being made on the part of uh, these uh, think tankers in, in the U.S. who think that, um, you know, just because they've been threatening Iran and, and actually imposing sanctions and ramping up the rhetoric about, you know, nuclear bombs and all of that, that uh, Iran would somehow rush into the arms of, of Western interests uh, and, and plans to undercut Russia, when mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, Iran is, um, you know, it's forming all of these new economic um, associations and bonds with the Asian banking community. It's, uh-huh. it's still bearing the brunt of all of this uh, bullshit lies and rhetoric regarding the Yemeni Houthis, who you know, who uh-huh. are trying to support without uh, yeah. without being vilified too much. You know, so uh, how dumb uh, do they think? Uh, that the leaders in Iran really are. Uh, Iran knows which side uh, their their butter is breaded on. They they, they know um, that. Uh, did I reverse that? Yeah, bread buttered. 
and um, you know, and they also know that uh, you know they, they've also watched what the U.S. has done in Libya and in Iraq, and now in Syria for the past. 10, 20 years. I mean, they mm-hmm. they know who they're dealing with. So, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think the Iranians are, um, you know, I mean, they're not, we shouldn't, we shouldn't think that the Iranians just because they've had the, uh, the, the, the raw, the crappy end of the stick uh, for so long from the West that they would necessarily be an enemy of the West. And I think you see that in, in the way that um, Russia has been dealing with Iran. My impression over the past number of years is that Russia has been fairly cagey in terms of its dealings uh, with Iran. You know, it hasn't uh, seen Iran as a, as a fully-fledged uh, ally, you know, and I think there's reason there to... To, for them to to, to 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 be suspicious of 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 where Iran would ultimately uh, go, you know, and um, I mean they're much more com- comfortable. The Russians are much more comfortable with China uh, and stuff, but um, I think they're uh, in the whole Middle East in general. It's it's, it's a very it's a very difficult uh, place to try and. Uh, uh, do business and I mean it's rife with just uh, double dealing and hypocrisy and lies and backstabbing and all sorts of stuff and it's, it's been that way for so long since the Brits more or less created it you know a uh, hundred years ago so um, I think the Russians are right to be kind of cagey with Iran but um, it's uh, I think from the point of view of the Americans they they figure that it's better to have Iran on side than to make a real uh, enemy of it in the sense of you know trying to destroy the country. I mean, it's, it, it would be uh, a bigger uh, task to, 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 do, to do that. Um, uh, it would be their biggest uh, job yet, if you know what I mean. Because I mean, Iraq took 10 years. Uh, there's 26 million people in Iraq. There's 80 million people in Iran. Uh, it's, a, it's a much bigger country, so um, it wouldn't be such a such an easy task to just go in there and and. I don't think the Americans have the stomach for it, or, they, or not not the stomach, but I don't think they have the resources for it really at this point. And I think there are other plans afoot uh, as well. And I think the dominant one is that um, is that they want to contain Russia, and they realise the serious threat that Russia and the kind of Eurasian, new Eurasian kind of community uh, poses uh, to America's world hegemony. And and they take it seriously. And I mean, it, it's remarkable. I'm actually surprised that they've actually seen enough uh, sense in that sense to um, to to be rational about it and not just say, okay, just bomb everybody. You know, they they realize that they have enough foresight and awareness to realize that listen, we can't just uh, bomb this problem away. That's not going to work. If we try and do that, we're going to lose. Uh, so they've fallen back on a little bit of diplomacy basically, which they haven't really used in any genuine sense for well, forever, really. Um, but the interesting thing about Iran is that, I mean, the other aspect that that points to what's, what's been going on, on in Iran is, <clears throat> or that points to the likelihood that Iran already has a bomb, is that uh, Iran has been focusing, and it's been in the news repeatedly over the past number of years, about uh, almost everything you hear from Iran uh, from a military perspective is is its development of longer and longer range weapons, longer and longer range missiles. So I think uh, what was in play there, okay, Iran may have had a warhead, but who 
uh, it, it, how was it going to deliver it and where was it going to be able to deliver it to, you know, uh, short of giving it to somebody in a suitcase or something, uh, which I don't think works, um, they're going to have to put it on a missile, right? So uh, to be effective, and I think that has been, uh, major part of sanctions has been uh, trying to stop Iran from uh, getting the technology to be able to deliver its nuclear warhead slash warheads. Um, so that that was an interesting uh, that was an interesting aspect to it as well. You know that they were it's not much good having you can have all the centrifuges and all of your refinement processes and stuff and produce your nuclear warhead, but if you can't if you don't have a a, a stable, accurate and technologically advanced enough uh, missile to deliver it, well then it's not really ideal, you know. Mm-hmm. And and in that respect, Russia has been playing a part as well. I think in terms of uh, whether or not Russia would supply uh, Iran with that kind of missile technology. You know, they held off uh, for quite a long time on giving them the uh, missile defense. Russia's S S three hundred, I think, was the missile defense mm-hmm. system uh, that was held off, at, and the Russians did that, supposedly, at the request of the U.S. And apparently, the U.S. Uh, was uh, the U.S. government was surprised that they had actually agreed or had um, committed to to that request by the U.S. that they not sell that system to to Iran. Um, so that aspect of it, I think, it's important as, important as well. You know, the ability to actually deliver uh, a nuclear weapon. Um, so there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I kind of take a, a step back from the whole situation and, and this kind of change in strategy, if that's what it is, on the part of the U.S. in in trying to uh, broker deals with Iran, I, I keep imagining someone like uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, in full kind of emperor regalia, sort of saying maybe Iran can be turned, you know, to the dark side or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, uh, but. Certainly, I mean, I don't know. You, you, it seems that Iran and Russia uh, at least have the potential to be natural allies. They they both support Syria. Uh, they both have uh, interests in the Middle East. Um, uh, they're both, you know, uh, Iran has been in strong support of Assad and trying to do as much as it can without um, uh, right. getting itself to remember- too involved. Yeah. Yeah, you have to remember also that Iran, uh, I mean, both Iran's and Russia's economies are based on oil and gas, so they're also natural competitors, mm-hmm. uh, well, as well as uh, allies, in a, maybe allies in an ideological sense, but in an in a, in a energy resource sense, uh, I'm sure it's not lost on either of them that uh, they both need to sell their as much of their gas and oil as possible, and who's going to buy it? Mm-hmm. Well... Who's going to considering gonna... who's going to write? Um, at the same time, they, they've both been so heavily vilified by the U.S. Uh, that, you know, you, you'd think that the more constructive heads would prevail and they would form some kind of um, uh, <laughs> economic uh, agreement and understanding that that would allow for the both uh, for both nations to to make the money that they require. Uh, selling their natural resources without, you know, playing the game of Saudi Arabia, like undercutting uh, gas mm-hmm. 
oil prices and i mean that that's just my <laughs> that's just my why can't y'all just work together type thing oh yeah exactly it's like a little unrealistic uh it would just seem to be the logical thing to do well i think it's possible yeah but i guess but, i mean at that same time it's an it's i suppose that relationship is uh has all been to a large extent theoretical because of the sanctions uh, against Iran for so long, uh, the, the potential for a good relationship between Russia and, and Iran has been theoretical to a large extent, um, and because the real meat of that relationship would be the economic uh, relationship, and and the, as, as we mentioned, both of them are major oil and gas producers. Um, so I think now is the time now that Iran is able to uh, has been freed up to to a certain extent in in exporting. I mean, I mean, I noticed that they just. Uh, just a few days after the deal was struck, the first uh, Iranian oil tanker uh, left, heading for China, left uh, left the uh, Persian Gulf. You know, mm-hmm. so these these sanctions were. Um, I, I don't know the details behind that, but it's remarkable because they said that that was actually the first Iranian oil tanker to leave Iran and leave the Persian Gulf going to China. So it seems that the sanctions included pretty much an embargo, a lot more, mo- uh, uh, you know. Uh, to a large extent, uh, a complete embargo on international trade of Iran's oil. Um, so now that Iran is able to, is, is going to be able to, or is able to start selling that oil, well then it's, uh, I suppose that's going to have an effect on the international markets for it, and I suppose uh, Russia and China and Europe and uh, the rest of the world will just have to wait and see what way that plays out because, mm-hmm. as we mentioned already, the goal supposedly behind this peace deal with Iran is to, it for, from the U.S. perspective is, and, the, and, the, and the European perspective, is to, is to try and push Russia back uh, and undercut its, uh, its income from, from oil and gas. So, you know, it's a very difficult uh, You can see Iran's being offered a really uh, a good deal there um, in the sense of, hey, we want all your oil and gas. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just pay for it all. We'll take as much as you can give us. And Iran's meant to look at that and say, okay, but what about my friend Russia? What if that hurts them? Uh, what are the Iranians going to do in that situation? I mean, is ideology going to mm-hmm. trump the, the dollar? Well, I wonder, too, how much the banks have uh, any influence on this with uh, Iran kind of leaning towards the AIIB. Uh, maybe the IMF and the BIS are kind of worried about that and want to try and mm-hmm. open up relations with Iran to feed them there. Yeah, I think the problem there is that, that the AIIB is all in its infancy and the whole idea of a Eurasian Union and economic union is all in its infancy and I don't think anybody, uh, any prospective partners are within, you know, in all uh, sanity kind of uh, jump on board and commit themselves fully to it without seeing uh, where it's going to go, you know. I mean, I think a lot of people are waiting to see where that would go and, and wait until it becomes strong enough and dominant enough to, to really compete with the West because, you know, the West has, and here I talk about America and Anglo-American Empire and the EU and stuff have pretty much dominated the world economically and militarily, etc., for a long, long time. And you don't just unseat that overnight, you know. And while that is still uh, in the ascendancy, um, or in the ascendant, it's... Um, that's where you have to you have to consider it as a as a a way to 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 strengthen your economy and to if you're going to join right now if anybody's going to rejoin the 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 
the global economic community. And that means largely that means doing business, developing your business with the West. Well, there's another kind of concurrent uh, narrative or theory behind the uh, the talks with Iran and the U.S., and that is, you know, that at some point uh, the U.S. is going to point out something about Iran that's inconsistent with the deal, and of course it's going to use, um, you know, the idea that the the U.S. is presenting this fantastic deal with with Iran, and it, that all of this is just a kind of a, a setup and a red herring in order to turn the tables on Iran in a big way, uh, in, a, in a kind of a militaristic way, and uh, and kind of fulfill its original plan to make Iran the last of seven or eight countries that, uh, that the U.S., you know, um, aims to uh, obliterate in the Middle East. Uh, right. Um, and I'm just wondering you- if, you know, that, that that seems like a probable scenario to you. Well, can you can you imagine? I mean, well, obviously, I think it's a it goes without saying that Iran has considered that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, based on past form, uh, the West's past uh, form in terms of dealing with any country, it's uh, you know they do turn on people on a dime. Uh, they're not to be trusted for a second. But at the same time, you have to. Do business with these people. Can you imagine how complicated it is doing business in that kind of a at that level you know, mm-hmm. with the U.S. with these power brokers and stuff? In the knowledge that these people are like, they're like, you know, they are absolutely uh, untrustworthy. They you cannot trust them as far as you can throw them, and that they will turn on you in any minute. But you have to go in there and all smiles and do deals and stuff. All the while thinking that, okay, this deal may be a complete con, they may be setting us up. We all have to think three steps ahead to see uh, what they might be planning here. Is this, a, is this a, a setup or are these people genuine? You can imagine how it would do your, do your head in. It would, I mean, you would lose your marbles if, uh, after a while trying, to, trying to, to work under those conditions. But that's the way of the world, you know. And, I mean, it's very, very unstable for that re- reason, you know. And the only reason that... Um, the only reason that Russia under Putin has been able to have the success that that it has is because uh, Putin and his advisors are well. They have learned from from the past, from observing the way uh, the West works and how duplicitous they are. And it has also uh, they're also very good strategists. They don't sit back and just wait for the U.S. to. To, to do something or they don't they don't take them at face value. They have their own game plan and they have put forward their own strategy that involves multiple permutations of any given kind of plan and that at each step is taken, uh, you then uh, reassess, look at where it's going. If there's any changes needed, you make them. Uh, uh, you know, you, you can decide one thing one day, but then a week later you may have to change it and back out. I mean, this is the way you have to do business and you have to be a really excellent strategist and very, very aware of the nature of your enemy. And um, I would hope that uh, the Iranians have uh, are similarly versed in Western uh, manipulations. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're going to have to. They're going to have to try and, um, you know, uh, figure out how to pro- proceed uh, now uh, with someone who effectively and in every sense was your arch enemy for so long. And now you're going to have to be friends, quote unquote, with them. 
all the while knowing that this guy is probably still your enemy. I mean, I'm just glad I don't have to have anything to do with those people there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Joe, thanks for calling. We've got another caller we're going to go to. Yeah, so, I'm going to uh, go. I'm going to take Okay. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, thanks. Take care. We'll hear you, you tomorrow. All right. See you later. <laughs> see you. So we got another caller. This is uh, Jonathan from Tampa Bay. Jonathan, are you there? Yes. Yes. Yeah, second second time caller. Um, yeah. How's it going? As, uh, very well, thank you. As far as the conversation having to do with the Iran agreement um, and, and with respect to uh, what the game plan is with respect to uh, Russia being uh, a, comp- a natural competitor as far as resource um, exports. Now, I believe that Russia has been involved in, in this very, very grueling and long-term uh, process to get Iran, you know, uh, out of this kind of sanctions uh, pariah dynamic onto the world stage again. Um, Ru- Russia's been involved in this from the beginning. So mm-hmm. I believe that, uh, that that the people in the know in the world community um, understand full well that the United States economy is at some point going to collapse. The dollar is going to collapse. The United States is going to uh, experience a, uh, a, a, um, a diminution in their power and their prestige worldwide. And um, I believe that's going to happen through the vehicle of the Dewan uh, and the Remimbi becoming a, an, an alternate source of trade in the world. So I believe that going into this they know full well that that in the in the future not not distant future that the united states is, the dollar is going to collapse so they are um they approached it in that end and i also agree with the comment that you know what what broke the uh what broke the stalemate with respect to the us is that the united states also knows that barn door is shut as far as iran goes for so long so Let's go ahead and make a deal at this time and try to get onto some friendly relationships and and see if Iran will uh, will, will play ball, so to speak, um, as we go forward. So I, th- I think that's that's the the calculus, the calculations that are uh, behind these decisions and in, in, in ultimately reaching some uh, agreement after a very very grueling um, process, you know, of of, of of crafting the documents to, to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that goes back and to something that Joe had, that Joe had just said about just how many contingencies and factors have to be taken in, into account for the, the people writing up these deals and, and negotiating on them because there are just so many factors and possibilities to keep in mind for how things will turn out. So they all have to be kept in mind. And so that's where it gets confusing looking at what actually happens is, you know what's on the top of the list for them, and uh, are they really? You know, have they thought about this? Are they planning for this? And and if we if we do this, and then in the future, like the the dollar collapses, then what happens? And it's a. What do you think about? Well, that? I think it's a, it's all a it's it's all a um it's all it's all like geopolitical uh, positioning for the long term, and I believe mm-hmm. also that uh, the elites in the United States 
they're aware that at some point the the one remember um the platform that's going to develop and through the bricks as well that that when when it becomes viable and people hedge their they hedge their 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 capital investment monies um toward you know little by little toward um diversifying with the one remember that's the death knell of the dollar and um because you know ultimately you know it's a very interesting and complicated subject but ultimately nothing's backing up this uh dollar and um have you noted that, that this last week um gold went down a bit and and both china and um well i know that russia and china are big players in 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 hoarding that's probably the wrong word but but uh, bulking you know bolstering their surpluses their uh their reserves mm-hmm. of gold and um I believe they're doing this because um, when the United States dollar does begin to collapse, people are going to be looking for currencies that are backed by something that's tangible, and that's where gold plays that role, right? And um, I called you once before, but um, it never ceases to amaze me. Um, I don't get, I don't engage in many political dis- discussions among my, you know, countrymen and so forth, but sometimes mm-hmm. I do just to kind of pick their brain and see where their thinking is at. And it never ceases to amaze me, this whole thing, the demonization of Russia. Um, I got into a little mini-debate with this guy on a job I was working at, and um, this guy was just totally convinced that, like, Crimea, oh, Russia went in there with guns, and it was a forced vote. And, oh, my God, it was just – it was painful to uh, engage this person because I tried to at least – try to find out what the counter, the best counter arguments of my inclinations are on anything. And and it's just um, totally amazing um, that you would think that in this day and age where we have the internet, and that might have been a game changer, how people just incredibly put energy into, into confirming their biases um, through limiting the sources in which they seek news. And, you know, people that are more curious and a little bit more, they value free thinking, you know, they might go the extra mile and they will, you know, alter their opinions and so forth. But just how much of the population just tenaciously want to, you know, kind of stay in with those, those dominant narratives and memes of our culture. It's just, it's freaking tenacious and it's incredible. It it amazes me, frankly. There are a couple of things there, Jonathan. You know, it's like on any given day, you know, you you pop open uh, an issue of um, Newsweek or online or the New York Times or the Washington Post, and this narrative, uh, this false narrative, um, is you see it perpetuated, and it's it's just presented as a given that it's true when it isn't, and um, even though there's this. Uh, I think a, a pretty big backlash against mainstream media in the U.S. There, there are fewer people, you know, listening to the, the major news sources uh, than ever before. Um, the, the, those that do have this authoritarian mindset and have been um, so used to getting their news and information from these sources still kind of uh, rely upon them uh, for their information. And the other thing is. Even though there's a, a wealth of alternative information suggesting 
that we're being lied to by the mainstream media, it's still in the minority. And there's so much, um, there's so many lies being perpetrated, even on the internet. So that's why, you know, to our listeners who, uh, who like to share information, good information, you know, using uh, social media, for instance, to give the other side of the story, as you said, is so important because many people are just not getting it. Don't well, I, 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 would, not... I would say this. Yeah, I, I would say this. I, I kind of stumbled upon SOT Network uh, because I just I became enthralled in the whole Russia scenario. Ever since I was a kid, mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, you know, nuclear war is just one of my huge fears, right? So as I started delving into this and I started you know, looking at RT, other sources, um, Joaquin Flores, Lotta Ray, a couple of examples, just so intelligent people that have an opinion and they develop a narrative of what's, what's going on. And Paul Craig Roberts, invaluable. So as I start stumbling into this, I'm like, wow, you know, it's like it's so easy to find the counter narrative. And then when you look at people who have opinions on these issues, they don't even do, do they don't even engage in due diligence to look at the best most forceful counter arguments to their uh suppositions on this issue they don't even do that and it, it just it just um bespeaks a lack of intellectual integrity that is just um it's pathetic and it's very frightening and that this is probably the biggest corporate, the biggest uh, institutional news apparatus that's ever been developed in human history, the United States. And just the percentage, you have such an easy access to counter narratives. And then, but the people that come in these positions that have an opinion, I mean, my God, uh, you know, when they have these um, these caricatures, they they follow the state state department line on it. It's as though they don't even bother to research the variety of best counter narratives to what their positions are, and I think that's just incredibly pathetic. And uh, but that is the world that we live in here as United States citizens, and it and it's just extremely that just compounds the fear that um, mm-hmm. moves will be made that that could eventually lead to a nuclear. Uh, Holocaust, you know, a, a nuclear conflagration, and um, it just—it just—I'm like, I'm like a voyeur looking at all this happening in slow motion, and I'm just like, my jaw is just slack, and I'm just like looking at it. I'm like, what, what the f? And um, it just keeps going on and on and on, and it's like it just, it's crazy. But I do value y'all as um, people that do do that do engage in, um, you know, research and, and you, you engage in critical thinking and you present your thoughts on these topics to the broader public. But really, man, you guys are just in an incredibly small minority. And um, so I value, I value what y'all have to say on these issues very much because, you know, I kind of look at things like, look, let's look at things ethically, you know, put yourself in another person's position and then you can assess the uh, events that are going on around us and, and you can um, you can just say, hey, this stuff is not right. Like uh, in Libya, you know what they did there in Libya is, is a freaking crime. And uh, you know my best friend, he's like he's got an IQ just as incredible. He's an artist and all that, but he's he's in an apartment holed up. As soon as he got the TV, he starts. This guy is just really a genius. 
and he starts believing the crap from the mainstream media about Libya. And I'm like, whoa, bro, you know. But then as soon as he got rid of his TV, I said, man, you know, you've been way smarter than me every time, like, we've discussed things. You, you were integral to my development. Uh, and I just watched you just buy this crap. I'm like, wow, man, because you had that. You just sit in the apartment all day watching that freaking TV. Wow, that, that's, that's incredible power in that freaking TV, man, in radio and so forth. It's, just, it's amazing. But anyway, hey, thanks a lot for letting me voice my views here. And um, I'm enjoying the show, and, and God bless you all, okay? All right. Thanks. You too, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, one of the really mind-numbing things is uh, just the, the real lack of any actual information in you know, our, our mainstream media. Like, it's, it's just absent. All you have is really just these uh, platitudes, and mm-hmm. it's it's a comedy. And, I mean, literally, you know, you have Jon Stewart using yeah. this as a, a comedic uh, a performance, and um, there, there's no there's no depth there. There's no meaning. It's um, it's, it's it's just yeah. It's like it's mind numbing, like like I was saying. But then what gets me is, like Jonathan was saying, how tenaciously these ideas are then held, and how emotionally invested people get in these ideas, or and these just totally false representations of reality. It that's what boggles my mind is that people can be so invested in this story that they've just heard on, you know, someone just said it on news or whatever. Someone has just said this statement, and yet that it's like this vir- viral infestation that takes over their minds and automatically or this just becomes something that this person needs to believe and needs to, to preach around the world, even though there's nothing to back it up. Well, you've just used a very interesting way to describe it. It's like a viral infestation. And the thing is, what they've been told is that anyone with an alternative uh, view or understanding of a particular situation is the one who has the, the viral infestation, mm-hmm. the conspiracy theory. And, uh, you know, I, I, I talk to people sometimes, and, um, and it, could be, it could be something as innocuous as dietary changes. Yeah. And, uh, and they ascribe conspiracy theory to it. It's incredible. And I, I just think that we have to remember that for a person uh, who is, is so um, inured to the lies, who is so uh, or used to them, and who has accepted all of these narratives, um, to, you know, to start to question any one of them would mean an, uh, a, an upheaval in their being. Mm-hmm. You know, once you question one thing, then opens a whole new uh, can of worms. Exactly. Um, but it, eating all that sugar and wheat uh, probably tunes their receivers for that kind of a message, and it's very easy for them to pick that up rather than the contrary that we present. Yeah, because uh, Jonathan mentioned just the, the idea of critical thinking, and it's not like people are just naturally born with critical thinking. I mean, people don't think. Our natural state of being isn't one of reasonable rational thought that uh, that is based on evidence and you know non-contradiction that's something that people have to learn and it's just and so there are these two at least two aspects of education that people don't get and that is one to be able to train the mind train the train your reason to be able to to look at these things dispassionately and to overcome the um, the influence of that 
more uh, basic instinctual way of thinking that is pretty much emotionally based. On the other hand, we also have to train and learn a new way of feeling in order to um, to feel certain things in response to to uh, certain things in the world. So when we because uh, these things can be evaluated um, just in terms of an objectively uh, right or wrong response. So if you have a, a reaction to a lie and this emotional reaction and that controls your thinking, you're not you're not operating the way that you should be ideally. It's basically backwards. Backwards. So you need to retrain both your emotions and your mind. They both have the they both have a um, a vital role to play in in seeing the world and and then. Um, taking what you learn from the world in, in, or, in order to then act in the world. But we, we just run totally automatically, especially Western American culture. It's just this totally automatic thing where you hear what is in the news, you have an automatic emotional reaction, and then you just go. There's no critical thought. There's no hesitation. There's no questioning. And it is just very painful to watch happen. Like you said, it's like watching a, a train wreck in slow motion. It's it's uh, yeah, it, it, and like you were saying earlier, Elon, it does have a lot to do with um, knowing how the mind works. And in this, these fear-based um, messages, they actually stop critical thinking. When, when you're in that state of stress, when you're in that state of fear, you know, your mind is not going to be prone to stop and think about you know, what you're uh, being presented with. Um, I, have a, I have an example <clears throat> of this uh, budding young fascist. Uh, she's uh, from this new fringe news channel called uh, One American News. Uh, their pledge is just the facts, empowering you to form your own beliefs. And so her uh, one of her latest uh, episodes ended with uh, this two-minute rant, um, which basically had no information. No facts. No facts. <laughs> And it's it's uh, been making its rounds uh, among you know, the conservative circles and uh, kind of went a little viral. Uh, her name's Tommy Loran. Uh, she's pretty young, she's fresh out of college, from about 22, and I think she's trying to give uh, Fox a run for their money and being the most absurd extremist on air. So um, you might, upon listening to it, you might think it's from The Onion, but it's it's not. <laughs> All right, here we go. Try to, just in case, um, be ready. You know, if you need a, a garbage, right? You know, get one right next to you in case you suddenly have to throw up because that might happen. Four United States Marines are now dead. Climate change didn't kill them. Lack of free community college didn't kill them. The income gap, wage inequality, nope, not those things either. Gay marriage, nope. Oh, white racism, not that either. So what did? President Obama, if you won't say it, I will. Radical Islam. This is not workplace violence. This is not a criminal act with motives unknown. This is terrorism. The suspected shooter, Mohammed Abdulaziz, a devout Muslim. Do I care that he seemed like an all-American young man? Do I care that he was good at mixed martial arts or a smart, quiet guy? Do I care that his high school friends wouldn't classify him as overly religious? No, I don't give a flying you-know-what about any of that. Was he linked to ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Hamas or any of the other 15 plus offshoot terrorist groups, does it matter? 
I'm sorry, but radical Islam is becoming the rule, not the exception. Yesterday's moderate is today's terrorist. I care that this SOB killed four of our United States Marines, and I care that our commander-in-chief is more concerned with Muslim sensitivity than the honor and sacrifice made by these Marines. Be a leader, someone. They, the radical Islamists, have brought the fight right here to the red, white, and blue, and it's about time we bring it to them, full force. Let's show them what the United States of America looks like up close and personal. Show them what a B-1 bomber looks like flying overhead. Show them what they're messing with. Put the fear of God in their desert. Because clearly our lack of strategy isn't working. How's that for extremism, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, people have been comparing her to like a young Ann Coulter. Uh, I think she refers to herself as a, a, the female Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, it's it's just so dangerous to to have these types of people uh, on air and you know spouting these these really awful awful things um one of the things that really struck me was how she was saying you know radical islam is becoming the rule not the exception and that yesterday's moderate is today's terrorist so she's going with this line that is often just implied in you know these these conservative shows that all uh all muslims are extremists Mm -hmm. and you know really what we're seeing um particularly since the beginning of the year is this real is this increase in uh demonization of of muslims um we've we've written a lot about it on thought and it it could be compared to you know a a new holocaust 2.0 that's being geared up And you know, and these these types of um, bobbleheads, they're they're at the forefront. I love the intro that she gave there uh, because it made no sense. It's like saying an apple is not a banana, a yeah. chair is not a kitchen table, a lamp is not a ceiling fan. It had nothing to do with it. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. No, this this is. <laughs> she she reminds me a little bit of uh, Sarah Palin. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's um, probably her delivery is a little better than Sarah Palin's, um, but it, it's just by virtue of Sarah Palin saying what she does in the way that she does that baptism is our way of ba- or no, it was waterboarding is our way of baptizing terrorists. <laughs> oh. I mean, she had. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, yeah, looking a little nauseated <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. Uh, and the fact is, so many people have have bought into uh, Sarah Palin. When, if you just stop for just a moment, just just the briefest of moments, to actually listen to what she's saying, um, she's it's utter nonsense. Mm-hmm. All of it. Uh, it's all platitudes. It's all rhetoric. Uh, much of it based on lies and misinformation. And um, you know, as you were saying, Shane, you know, she, th- this uh, Tommy, um, uh, Lorianne, Lorianne, I mean, she is this new generation of, of bobbleheads that uh, that you know, she's like Hitler Youth, basically, mm-hmm. uh, held up high to represent you know American values, quote unquote, and um, will be part of the forces responsible for a. Holocaust, Holocaust 2.0, if it should come to that here in the U.S. Well, that was, that was pretty much my impression was that I'm watching this Hitler youth. Yeah. Like that, this is a, the type of uh, person that you'd see in Nazi Germany 
and yeah. you know just like spouting off these things just like openly openly hateful and violent and belligerent arrogant um openly not very smart just it's it's astounding and proud of it and even that last line you know we'll show them what our bombers look like and put the fear of god in them in their deserts i mean talk about the lowest of the low well she reminds you said she talks about herself as being like a female donald trump yeah yeah well then she'd be yeah she fits she fits right in uh i want to play another clip from john stewart just because it's really funny on trump um, we'll just go into it because this description of Trump pretty much um, lines up with Tommy. For more on the developments in Donald Trump's presidential bid, because, yeah, why not? <laughs> Nothing else really is fun to talk about. We turn to senior election correspondent Jordan Klepper, who is at Trump International Hotel. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Yes. Hello, John. Jordan, uh, a month into Trump's campaign, and he has already managed to alienate most of his own party. I know. The man is truly an inspiration. He, he, wait. <laughs> an inspiration to whom? Well, to me, to my hedge fund manager, to frat boys everywhere, John. <laughs> Don't you see, Donald Trump could very well be our first openly asshole president. <laughs> Come on. That can't be true. That can't even be true. What, what about Andrew Jackson? Sure, he was an asshole. Oh, no, 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 no. J- Jackson was a compassionless killing Nixon. machine. Nixon. Nixon. Now, Nixon's assholishness went unconfirmed up until those tapes leaked. But Trump, on the other hand, says it loud and proud. I'm here. I'm an asshole. Get used to it, you Mexican rapist losers. Uh, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, and I admit this, I, I, I never did, I never thought about it that well, way. John, clearly you're one of those people who is prejudiced against asshole Americans. Jordan, that's, that's... Jordan, that's totally not true. So I, I very close friends who are assholes. Oh, uh, really? Yep. Like, like who? Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. I told you. I get it now. Trump's campaign is a step forward for assholes everywhere. Well, not just a step, a giant leap for ass kind. But today, today is a new day, not just for me, but for the little assholes out there at home sassing their underpaid cleaning woman. To the grown assholes out there uh, running their first puppy mill or clapping at the wrong parts of Wolf of Wall Street. Now, now those assholes can dream. And so we say thank you, Donald Trump, for being such a tremendous asshole. Jordan, that that was beautiful. Thank Thank you. you. It's funny because it's true. Well, it's amazing because Trump is leading the polls. Yeah. He's, he's he's right up there. But even though it's satire and humor, it it does say a lot, and there's a lot of truth in there. Because really, it's people like Donald Trump and this Tommy Flaren, whatever her name is, who are openly assholes. They they are the psychopath without the mask on. It's like you know why even bother anymore? Let's just let it all hang out because that that's what these people are. They are so over the top and they're not even, they don't even bother covering it up anymore. So on the one hand, yeah, that's why I've said in the past that it would just be pretty awesome if Donald Trump was president because, because he's just so in your face and so obvious that there would be no plausible deniability that, uh, that America is a complete joke. 
Oh, I'm right there with you. I I, I do hope that Trump wins because he, he he's like such the ideal representation of modern America. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's just he's just the picture of of what we've become. And I don't think um you know I can I can imagine some responses like oh how could you guys say that um because he just do so much wrong. And, um, you know, at least if we had the lesser of two evils, we might be able to keep things in check. Well, who who the president is doesn't matter. The, the president is just the face of the American government and doesn't have any real power. So, I mean, things aren't going to change. The policies are still going to be the same. There's not going to be no radical shift in foreign policy. It's just going to be the same game over and over. We might as well have an entertaining person to look at and make fun of while it's happening. You know. I don't know how much our audience uh, knows about Donald Trump in particular, but just the very fact that this buffoon is running for president in the United States, uh, it's such a, you know, it's such a joke. I can't even read the articles um, about it because uh, he's basically just a real estate developer. He's never held any public office. As far as I know, he's never done anything really kind of philanthropic or constructive in any way. Uh, he ran for president, uh, I think, at the last election, and then when when the questions got too hot concerning something like tax returns or something, he was gone. So you know he's he's kind of feeding off of this media uh, attention right now, and in six months we're going to be back to Jeb and Hillary, uh, which which is even kind of more disgusting. And I guess I guess Trump is just kind of maybe he is valuable in the way that you know he he's staving off. All of that really kind of full-on uh, um, assault of Jeb, and Jeb versus Hillary uh, for as long as possible. Um, but I mean, this guy—he's uh, like—he's like, he's like a, you know, on a level of a, a Sarah Palin. Really? Well, but wait, I saw him on TV. He had that great program, you know, <laughs> and looked like he was in charge. Uh, you're fired. You know, and looks like he could handle it pretty well in there. What was that show again? The, uh, the Boss? No. Your, was it just called You're Fired? I don't know. Something in, yeah, something in name. Yeah, it was like uh, some kind of, you know, uh, celebrity something or other. Yeah. The Apprentice. The Apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, chat room chatters, um, I think you should be ashamed for knowing that. <laughs> But no, thank you. We appreciate it. The Apprentice. Yeah. Oh. And he's even admitted, you know, they, everything he even says on that show is scripted. You know. <laughs> but the viewers don't know that. Well, he's really, you know, I, I agree. This is a sideshow, but it's really just a sideshow to another sideshow. You know, with the whole uh, elections and presidency. It's, it's, it's just, the whole thing's a farce. Well, speaking of TV, um, let's move on. Just recently, because uh, I don't watch TV, but uh, but just recently, I uh, you know, had a moment of weakness and uh, started watching a TV show just because it wasn't available on DVD yet. Yeah, I know. Shame on me. But luckily, what I, what we've been doing is uh, pre-recording it so we don't have to sit through the commercials. So we fast forward through the commercials, but I just got to say that the commercials, it is painful to to watch TV and 
having been immune from the the evil of commercial breaks for so long, it was just such a shock to see just how ridiculous and stupid the commercials are. Not to mention like the TV shows, the majority of the TV shows, but it's just unbelievable. And it, it is physically painful to watch these television commercials. And mind-numbing. <laughs> mind-numbing. So, um, but there's the, there was an article recently um, on one of these trends in, that you see all over, not just in television commercials, but in advertising, um, billboards, magazines, all over the place. And that is, of course, the, the prevalence of mainly sex, but also violence in, so sexual imagery and violent imagery in in advertising. And um, so for me, at least, uh, watching different programs and, and media analyses and advertising, stuff on advertising, stuff like that, the main the, the idea that I see often is that, well, that advertising, uh, they do all this stuff because it works. And so the... Now, of course, there are advertising firms and you know giant corporations that work on this stuff and try to come up with ads that that will subtly, unconsciously influence people to buy these products. <clears throat> so I think we can admit that uh, certain advertising techniques do work, but I, but it may be a stretch to say that just because you're seeing an ad, that ad is working. There are good ads and and bad ads. Ads some some ads could be better. <laughs> ads are just bad. Some, some are bad. Yeah, some they're are just not. They're just not good. They're just not good. And they could be better. They should make. <laughs> they should make a better ad. But apparently, you know, this is true because um, there. Well, apparently, this this study was done uh, by some guys. That one of who, at least one of which is from uh, Ohio State University, Professor Brad Bushman. Um, they did this study with a bunch of people uh, to test the idea that sex sells, and they found that despite this advertising ad- adage, customers can be so distracted by the sexualized content of the adverts that they fail to notice the products involved. The study found that shoppers are less likely to remember adverts featuring sexually explicit content, violence, or other non-family related uh, or non-family friendly material than more benign adverts. So Bushman said that the findings of the study were hugely relevant to advertising agencies. So the, our findings have tremendous applied significance, especially for advertisers. Uh, sex and violence do not sell, and in fact, they may even backfire by impairing memory, attitudes, and buying intentions for advertised products. Advertisers should think twice about sponsoring violent and sexual programs and about using these themes in their ads, he added. He explained that the test had found almost no evidence to suggest the use of sex or violence uh, increase the sale of a product. Hmm. Thoughts? Well, I think uh, I think I think this makes sense. However, I don't I don't know that you know it'll actually impact no. advertisers exactly. any. Yeah. Uh, just because it's it's uh, advertising like anything else, it's so infected um, with this with pathology, and you know that is really the driving force. Um, you know, the, it's it's this force to you know uh, destroy um, uh, conscience and a force to to destroy anything creative, and it's not so much about like making money. You know, that's it's that that may overlap in some parts, mm-hmm. but it's 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 really having to do with something else altogether. I've got a conspiracy theory because, like I said, these these advertising firms have huge. 
resources for, for testing these ads and seeing which ones work and which ones don't. So I think we already know that the sex, that sex doesn't sell. But in this case, that, like, you, like you're saying, Shane, that's not the goal. Is that they, they're, they have a, an ulterior motive for, for these sexualized ads. So, of course, they'll make ads to sell products. But I think part of this is just the perpetuation of this, um, this attitude and this view of sexuality and this, this uh, hyper-sexualizing of entire generations and of Western society as a whole. Because um, it's like if you want to keep a population um, dumbed down and um, not a threat to your power and keeping hold of that power, you, can, you just have to take a multi-pronged approach and you just focus on all of the, the, the base, like low-level aspects of, of humanity that you can um, just reinforce in order to prevent any kind of uh, higher development in the, in the slave population. And one of which is just the just crude sexuality, um, just presenting, um, presenting people as sexual objects. Not only does that separate people from each other, but that has the extra effect on a macro level of um, preventing any kind of um, pro-social community or um, getting, getting together and having any real um, action that will make a difference in the world. So I think it's just uh, intentional, and it's, uh, and if not intentional, just the the natural expression of the way these people are with this totally perverted sense of sexuality, and that of course um, we can, if we broaden our horizons a bit and, and where we're looking, we find that everywhere. So um, Fernando Aguirre, Agra, um, Furfall, he had a uh, who we interviewed. Um, a couple of months ago, had a recent article on human trafficking. And, well, Ilan, do you want to say a bit about that one? Well, uh, it's, uh, the article is called Preparing for the Increase in Human Trafficking, Five Things You Must Know. Um, and basically, he's, you know, he's kind of basing his, uh, his knowledge of human trafficking and, uh, and sex slavery, among other things, on the collapse in Argentina in, in, two, in the early 2000s when he was living there. And, um, and so, you know, he's able to look around and, and see this dynamic at play in, in other places. And his message is, you know, uh, considering how um, unstable uh, many economies are around the world, it's going to happen in much larger numbers than we're already seeing. So um, he he kind of outlines uh, you know a few points about this um, kind of biases that many people might have about uh, falling prey to human trafficking. Um, the first is that it can happen to anyone. Uh, you know he says it's not just teens from troubled families. Uh, people get kidnapped everywhere. Uh, even from middle class and, and, and upper class neighborhoods. Uh, so you really have to be pretty vigilant. And it's not just teenagers or children, it, it's adults. Uh, and he you know, mentions the case of a 23-year-old, uh, Maria de los Angeles Verón, uh, who was a middle class mother 
um, in Argentina who was um, on her way to a doctor's appointment when she got abducted and never seen from again. Uh, another thing is that uh, it happens in rural areas. It's just it, it's not only an urban thing. I think uh, it's even primarily a rural thing. You said that uh, that rural judges are saying are, are reporting the most um, instances of of hearing about these crimes. So uh, he he heard that, and uh, you know it's just part of the list as well. It, it it's happening everywhere. Um, the third item he mentions is the internet. Uh, the dangers of the internet and and how large numbers of people um, meet up, uh, communicate with strangers, form uh, you know a little trust bond with them, because uh, these predators know a lot about how young vulnerable people think or or even older people, and uh, and get manipulated into situations where they get abducted and they use. Facebook and other social media as ways to track these individuals so they get to know them, they get to know their habits, where they're going to be, and uh, then exploit that information in order to kidnap these people. Um, but just to to get back to something we were saying, I think it was last week's show, um, <laughs> the, about, the, about predators, and I just wanted to say how ridiculous just reiterate how ridiculous it is to, for some researchers, to say that this is just a, um, you know, a projection of cultural fears, um, because this is happening. This is this is what we were talking about last week. That these that, that psychopaths adapt to what's going on. So they they are using the internet in in new ways in order to manipulate, exploit, and in this case, ultimately kidnap and enslave humans, children, adults, men and women. So this is a very real phenomenon. Uh, it is. It's not just a projection of fears or a, a, a flavor of the week type thing um, from normal people. Uh, the extent um, of human trafficking and, and, uh, and sex slavery is just growing massively. And every week we're hearing uh, some new story, it seems, about um, some network of psychopathic governmental or or, uh, or civic workers who are part of an organization who are um, a part of this. And I think, Shane, you have some information about that, which we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, there were just a couple of other points here that he makes. Um, uh, for Fall says that once taken, it's very hard to rescue people who were uh, abducted. Um, there are threats uh, against their lives, against their lives of their families. Uh, there will be uh, any and every kind of emotional and psychological manipulation being um, being made onto the abductees, uh, and threats of violence, of death. Um, so it's it's a very desperate situation for a lot of people, and. Um, the point there, the takeaway there is, you know, exercise as much situational awareness as you can for yourself and, and your families or people that you know who may seem vulnerable. They have to be informed. Um, the fifth item is it's already happening all around you. So Profile says it's not just prostitution or sex slaves. Uh, there are also people who are being um, made to work in various places. Uh, in New York City, in California, uh, maids, um, 
you know, working in farms. In in the U.S., in New York City, I remember about 10 years ago, there was a very famous story of, of these two uh, grifters, a mother and a son. Um, her name was uh, Hines. Um, anyway, as it happened, I was two degrees of separation <laughs> from, from two or three degrees of separation from knowing this woman. I knew someone who knew the woman, uh, a real estate uh, dealer in New York City, who this lady and her son killed um, to take possession of, of some money she had or something. And, uh, and this woman and her son um, would manipulate uh, workers, uh, mostly illegal immigrants, into working for them for years. Uh, and they had this incredible ability to threaten them and manipulate them into staying put. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the situation. And I, I just want to, as a last point, I just wanted to say that, you know, in addition to economic uh, upheavals that, that'll make people more vulnerable, uh, we're also going to see a lot of environmental changes that are going to create chaos and, and, uh, and, it, are going to enable the predators to come out in droves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw it with the tsunami in, in Asia in, in uh, I think it was 2005 or, or 2004. Um, kids were being snatched up wholesale uh, in very large numbers. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've also heard about this, I think, in Kosovo and Serbia uh, when the war happened there in, in the late 90s. So, um, scary times, but be aware, um, be safe, you know, think about people, you know, think about all the possible ways that, that people might be vulnerable and, uh, yeah, if there's anything to add about that. Well, the, I just want to read uh, one sentence from the article for fall says poverty, social degradation and loss of standards of living just degrade everything around you until one day you wake up, look around, and wonder what the heck happened. So, like you were saying, Elon, when these when these kind of societal changes happen, it has a way of either bringing out the best or the worst of a person. And we see this in warfare all the time. So this is what's going on in Ukraine right now, is when, when structures collapse like this, it, re- it really is a time when psychopaths take off the mask. And when things become obvious, because now they're, the, the social controls are degraded in such a way that, uh, that they feel free to just do whatever they want. What they naturally would do if, uh, if society wasn't so constrictive against uh, their, uh, their personal desires and urges, which end up taking the form of torture, murder, rape, slavery, all these things. So the fact that it's just kind of a natural phenomenon when these things happen to a society this kind of underbelly exposes itself, and it was there the whole time. And it was probably even operating almost at full strength that whole time, but it just, uh, it, the, the mask comes off and it just becomes more obvious. So, um, so this, this stuff will be going on. It will be more obvious, but it, it's, it's going on right now. And that's another thing, is that one of the other things that Fall says is that a lot of these kidnappers, they get away with it because they have friends in high places. Uh, and police, uh, police connections, political connections, judges, etc. And one of the reasons for this is that these are the, some of the people among their clients. And uh, well, we can get into 
Well, during these periods of chaos, uh, like you're talking about, Harrison, you know, on one side, we do see uh, psychopaths taking advantage of these situations, but it's also important and I think useful to understand that this can also be an opportunity for, for norm, normal people to try to establish a, um, a more human way of living. Um, there, there's, there's those systems that are kind of falling apart. And by and large, these systems are you know, infected and uh, degraded and just not working. Um, while all this is going on, if normal people could really step up to the to the plate um, and establish something, you know that that could actually do something. Um, but what happens more often than not is that since we don't have this knowledge of psychopathy, we don't have uh, this this ability to you know really um, stand up for our own uh, our own fate. Um, but if we can if we can learn how to do that 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 can be uh you know a measure against uh against these types um but getting back to what you were talking about Elon and your uh, your story about how you know you were 2 degrees uh of separation uh to these these sexual predators it brought me it brought to mind um some of um Anna Salter's work and you know her her book uh, Predators, and you know, it just has like so many horrific um, statistics. And one of them is that you know, it, it really uh, tears apart the, this this idea or this notion, uh, this narrative that we tell ourselves uh, to you know make us think that you know these these uh, predators really aren't as big of a threat as as we think, but uh, the, the the statistic was something like, you know, there's one of these uh, molest child molesters in like one square mile uh, in you know all over the country average. That, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you when you look at something or a place like uh, New York City, like it's just it's, it's just got to be you know baffling the numbers. Um, well, just to clarify, um, Shane. So uh, the the person was. Um, Kenny Kimes, and his mother was Sante Kimes, and it was a very famous case. Um, and they murdered a 83-year-old socialite in New York named Irene Silverman. But they had a, a long history of uh, of defrauding and manipulating and and uh, keeping people in a kind of work slavery. And uh, and some people think that uh, Kenny and Sante Kimes had a uh, incestuous relationship. I mean, there was a lot going on there. Um, and, and at the time it, it really made headlines because it was quite clear that this was a, a very like evil woman who, who had a total grip over her son and all the people that she came in contact with, you know, married rich husbands, had them killed, that sort of thing. Just to clarify. Well, if, um, if people have been following thought, I'm sure you've all seen a lot of the stories coming out of the UK and you know, with all the pedophile rings. And um, before we get into like the politics, uh, I wanted to just bring up one article on uh, there is a there's a charity uh, called the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, and they've they've been in a lot of these articles because uh, they they um, 
build up these these databases and collect the information uh, on you know what's going on and um, not just in politics but just in, in normal society. And uh, one of the things that they found was so just the scale of these uh, child abuse images is, is shocking. Um, and that they're finding uh, that a total of 4.5 million uh, child abuse images have been found. Um, but the other aspect of this is that those who have been caught, one third of them uh, were in some position of power over people. And this is something that we've talked a lot about, uh, how um, not just in terms of uh, these pedophiles and sexual predators, but predators in general, you know, they seem to gravitate towards um, any type of job or position where they can have some type of uh, power over somebody. And, uh, you know, that can include um, pastors, um, teachers, doctors, police officers, um, that that was there's just some of the offenders that that they found, and just like one third, like that's that's uh, it, it may even be higher than that, you know. Um, but that's a that's a pretty staggering number. Well, probably is bigger than that, especially when you look at some of the revelations that are coming out about just how prevalent um, this pedophilia it was and is still is probably among British MPs and leaders um, just recently. Well, the Australian 60 Minutes did a really good half-hour uh, report on the, the whole situation. They interviewed three of the victims that have come forward and named names. Unfortunately, you know, because of the nature of um, just lawsuits and um, well, they 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 didn't release all the names of the people these are, that these uh, individuals are accusing, just the ones that have that are already dead. So, but there are several others that were identified and left unnamed on the program. So, I just think it would be very a good thing to to have these all these people named and exposed in public. But of course, that could lead to lawsuits without proof. But some of the people that were identified, um, so there are a bunch of new material was found and released, and some of the names that have come out from that are, of course, uh, Cabinet Minister Leon Britton, um, notorious pedophile. He's been exposed in the past before, and this is the guy that he had just numerous um, accusations against him, which were covered up. And this is a guy that, um, well, if you watch V for Vendetta, the priest in that um, is not a caricature. Like there are people exactly like that priest in uh, in politics now mm-hmm. who happen in politics. This guy would, um, he liked, personally, he liked little boys to, to dress in women's underwear or girls' underwear. And then he would, uh, they'd get in a room together and he'd expose them and, and find the underwear and then punish them for, for wearing girls' underwear and... And then, you know, do other things. Um, Of course, another one who's also been known for a while, Cyril Smith. Um, This is the the very large guy, um, large personality, as well as large in physical appearance. And he was also just notorious. And 
and ex ex diplomat Sir Peter Heyman. This guy was ex deputy director of MI6. He was a high commissioner to Canada for several years in the 70s. And this guy, um, who one of the victims talks about in the program, um, he would carry around a uh, a little diary where he'd um, just write stuff down. And of course, this this guy who was a kid at the time didn't know exactly what he was writing down. He just thought it was probably things that he'd said, things that he could use against him um, just to, to scare him into not saying anything. But this guy, Heyman, was um, in, let's see, which sometime near the end of his life, yeah, in, in 78, he left a package of pedophile-related materials on a London bus, and the police tracked the package and discovered that he, uh, Heyman, was using uh, the pseudonym Peter Henderson and for this obscene correspondence, and they found out that he had several journals, 45 diaries, describing six years of, quote, sexual fantasies. Now, these probably weren't sexual fantasies. He was writing down what he'd actually done with these children, but, you know, they called them sexual fantasies in order to, to distance him from what he was actually doing. So these were um, these diaries were about things concerning children and, and activities with prostitutes. Um, and this guy's a sir. Uh, many of these guys are sirs, lords, leaders. Um, another one, former minister, William Van Straubenzi, um, now, in, 80, in 1986, uh, former MI5 director, Sir Anthony Duff, he wrote to Cabinet Secretary Sir Robert Armstrong um, to warn him about a danger, danger, because people were coming forward with these kinds of things. And, um, but the danger wasn't about the danger to children. It was actually something quite different. So he had been warned. Uh, well, he had, he had found out about, and so he was warning this MP about a certain M, or he was warning Armstrong about a certain MP who had a quote penchant for small boys. And so what this MI5 director had to say, Duff, was that the risks of political embarrassment to the government is rather greater than the security danger. So in other words, the risk of embarrassment for these pedophiles was more uh, pressing than the danger to the children that these men were abusing. So um, I just think that was a, a nice little glimpse into the mindset of the people that are still, the type of people who are still running governments and organizations and uh, intelligence agencies and federal police. So like MI5, MI6, and in the States that would be, you know, FBI, CIA, etc. Well, and as we know, like these agencies use this information, um, you know, against or, or to basically mold uh, these. Well, um, do we want to wrap that up? We're running close to the end of the show, so unless uh, sounds good. Anything else that you want to say? To just close out. I think we can continue this discussion uh, next week. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's more to say on it. Um, but I think we'll do that. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about, I think next week we'll do that, and we'll also talk about um, a great book that came out was it, um, called Confessions of a DC Madam. So this was written by Henry W. Vinson, co-written with Nick Bryant, who wrote, who wrote the book on the Franklin scandal. So it's another aspect of that case um, that is very relevant to what's going on in the UK right now. So I think we'll get into that a bit um, but uh, other than that, I think 
we're good for today, and uh, it's been fun. Yeah. Thanks to Joe and Jonathan for calling in. And, yeah, everyone take care. And Remember uh, to listen in behind the headlines tomorrow at 2 Eastern Standard Time and the Health and Wellness Show next Friday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Have a great week. Be safe. Thanks, everybody. All right. Take care. Take care.